Should we read the Bible literally? What does that even mean? We discuss this and more with special guest, Dr. Drew Johnson, on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking peoples, thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, a home for anyone who loves to have fun thinking deeply. I am your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, couch potato Bible enthusiast, and with me as always is my brilliantly biblical co-host. Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and um, <laughs> these are getting just more crazy and crazy and not succinct yeah. as we go along, but person who loves scripture and is not entirely sure how to read it or what to make of it, even after 33 years of reading scripture. So, which is why I'm very excited for today's episode. Lance on my old fold. That rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> put that in the bio. <laughs> exactly. And with us today is a very special guest. He is an author, academic, pod, and podcast host, and Presbyterian minister. He is associate professor of biblical and theological studies at the King's College in New York City, my alma mater, the director of the Center of Hebraic Thought, associate director for the Jewish Philosophical Theological Project at Hearst Institute in Israel, and co-host on the OnScript podcast. He has a PhD in theology from the University of St. Andrews, an MA in philosophy from the University of Missouri, and master's divinity of theology from Covenant Theological Seminary. He is the author of multiple books, including Human Rights, Scriptures Knowing, Biblical Knowing, Knowledge by Ritual, and most recently, Biblical Philosophy. He is the dazzling, the dashing, the dangerous Dr. Drew Johnson. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I feel, I feel like saying thank you is so anticlimactic. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. I do nerd podcasting where there's like no energy in the room at all. So <laughs> this is all new to me. We do nerd podcasting where we're overcompensating for being a nerd Yeah, podcast. yeah, I like it. I like it. Oh, I know all about overcompensating, so I got it now. <laughs> good, good. All right. Um, so, oh, oh, and Nathan, if people enjoy the energy in the room of our podcasts and want to see more such energy, uh, where should they go to engage more with our content and with fellow overthinkers like themselves? They can go to the overthinkersjournal.com where they can find out more about the hosts, our show, and any live events coming up. We just had a great Oscar party a little while ago. It was so much fun to get in a room uh, full of overthinkers and laugh and talk and discuss. So keep an eye out for future events. You can also go to our online community uh, on Facebook. It's a private group called The Overthinkers, where we have almost 5,000 people now discussing, posting, laughing, and engaging with uh thinking deeply and having fun all at once. So we would love for you to be part of that community. And if you do enjoy the show, please leave a review or share with a friend. It really does help us so much. All right, fantastic. Everybody ready to get started? Let's do it. Great, okay. So today we are going to discuss a topic that's sure to get everybody mad, which we love. Should we read the Bible literally? As a holy book for one of the biggest religions in the world, the Bible is no stranger controversy. One of those is whether or not we should take the Bible with its stories and accounts of historical events literally. According to a 2017 poll by Gallup, 24% of Americans believe the Bible should be taken literally, while 47% believe the Bible is inspired by God but shouldn't be taken literally, and 26% believe it's merely a collection of fables and stories. A similar 2021 poll by Barner Group had roughly the same numbers. Traditionally, this question was also controversial. While it's always been common for Christians to read Bible literally. Famous church fathers like Origen and Augustine thought that at least certain parts of the Bible, such as the Old Testament, should be read allegorically. Supporters of taking the Bible literally, unless clearly intended otherwise, argue that it seems to be the way the Bible intends itself to be read, so not taking it literally means weakening our confidence and trustworthiness of scripture. Skeptics point to the difficulties in reconciling this view of scripture with the Bible's many apparent contradictions with the scientific record and morally disturbing passages in, the, in scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Dr. Johnson, what does it mean to you to read the Bible literally? And if not all the Bible should be read literally, how would we determine which parts should be taken literally, which shouldn't, as Christian, as particularly as Christians, without doing harm to how the book is intended to be read? Yeah, um, 
So I think going back to those statistics, I would say you forgot the the key statistic, which is zero percent of those people could give a definition of literal, <laughs> right? Um, that really makes me want to literally smack a crowbar up your stupid hand. That's true. And so, yeah, I mean, I I have colleagues who would just and, and me too. I avoid the word literal altogether mm. because it's so vacuous, or, or people have loaded it with specific meanings that it doesn't really carry. Uh, the closest I'll get is to say literalistic, you know, like, so hmm. uh, this, this story is told literalistically, meaning that it seems to be told from a perspective, but intending to relate what somebody actually saw when they were there or how they, how they interpreted what hmm. they saw. Um, and I think, so there's this, that there's that issue of, there's really no definition of literal and in the definitions that are out there are not terribly helpful. So um, I'm one of those eject, you know, hit eject if it's not working Hmm. Um, and the, the other side too, which is, you know, we have the biblical literature is literature and it's lots of different literatures put together, hmm. which is, this is the second part of your question. Um, you know, it's written over, you know, at least over, well, if you're, uh, depending on how you rate these things, at least centuries, and if not a thousand or more years, um, by dozens of different people who, did not share the same cultures with one another, did not necessarily even speak the same languages or dialects for one another. Um, and they're writing poetry, legal reasoning, treatises, um, uh, oracles, all kinds of different genres. And I'm teaching right now in the book of Judges in my class. And the, the last part of the book of Judges, it, the genre is horror, basically. Um, mm. It's intentionally written in the horror genre. Um, a genre that didn't exist in its day, but if we were to label it according to our labels today, literary labels today, that would be it. So, um, and, and I say that in, in, in a sense to also mean that there are certain stories that are written in genres, not explicitly, but like uh, wild, you know, showdown at high noon in, in the mm. wild west, right? There's, there's not stories that are written in that particular genre, but that there's those kinds of genres at work in the story. So, um, when you see something like Moses's birth narrative that looks a whole lot like uh, the god Horus, who is born in danger from uh, his father Osiris, his mother Isis puts him in a basket coated in pitch and tar, sets him in the Nile River where he goes down and is raised to obscurity somewhere else and comes back into the pantheon. Like, as soon as you read Moses's birth story, you can't say, like, Oh, this is just, you know, this is just what the person saw who was the, the narrator saw when they were standing there watching all of this, taking notes, right? Um, you realize the story has been crafted in such a way to set up certain expectations by the employment of very particular and known genres. Um, so, you know, and that's just one of dozens and dozens and dozens of instances we could walk through. So the 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 question is actually absurd. Should we read that literally or not? Well, well what do you mean by literal? Um, so do you think there was someone standing at the riverbanks watching her, you know, uh, like watching her create the basket and then, you know, put it in and again, uh, setting up the shots. I always ask students like, how would you film this? Like, where would you put the camera? What would you focus on? Where's the F stop? Like, like what, what is happening in the scene and where's the focus in the scene? And for some scenes, like uh, that's very easy to do, uh, which I would say are more. Maybe we could take out the word literalistic and say they're 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 um, they lean filmically, like you can see how you would shoot them. Hmm. And then there's some like John one or um, even Genesis one, where you're like in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and, word, and you're like, I don't know where to put point the camera. Like I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> And, uh, and and that and even then, both of those texts quickly drop down to the ground from a perspective. Um, sure. So, what do you guys mean when you think say, so? I guess. Oh, you go. You go first. L Dave. Let me jump in because I feel like this question is something that, like you said, we it, we hear it all the time, right? Oh, can you read the Bible literally? And uh, I think we need some context about what that means culturally, at least in the zeitgeist. So mm -hmm. I can just give my, a little bit of my own story as to what this has meant to me growing up as a Christian kid. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian culture, going to church, 
And I was told if the Bible said it, it's true. And you, mm. a lot of times, the very first conversation this would revolve around would be the opening to the to scripture, which would be Genesis, right? Which is in six days, God created the earth and all, all these kinds of things. And people would argue over, well, is a day a day or is it a time period? This kind of a metaphorical understanding of a day, maybe it's a thousand years, um, you know, and it would, it would all be filtered through, do you, do you take the plain understanding of what the words are saying in scripture uh, to be true. And I, I remember going to like um, answers in Genesis, right? Answers in Genesis conferences in which I was basically told, you're not a Christian if you believe that uh, the earth wasn't made in six days, because if you believe that those days are metaphorical, then how could you ever believe that the days uh, referred to in Jesus as being dead and risen again aren't metaphorical? And so, you know, as a kid, I'm going, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I guess that to be a Christian, I have to believe in this quote unquote literal interpretation, which I think might be a better, better defined as a plain reading interpretation that if it, if it says it, it means it and it happened. Um, and there is, it's not, um, as William Lane Craig would say, mytho history. It's just exactly, it's historical, it's literal, it's, it, it happened in actuality. And then, you know, I get older and I, you know, uh, very confidently go out and argue with everyone I can and uh, say, well, you're not Nothing a Christian. Nothing much has changed. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and I, you know, you're not a Christian if you don't believe in the six days and you know, I, I kind of regurgitate these arguments I hear. And then, you know, I would actually have some good arguments put back to me. And a lot of them would be um, what you touched on. Well, the Bible isn't a book, it's a collection of books. And some are written as history, some are written as poetry and you know, even horror, like you say. And so it's hard to apply one standard of understanding to, again, a, a collection of works that's written over a thousand years by multiple people in different genres, in different languages. And I'm like, wow, that's a pretty good comeback. So what do I do? Can I trust the Bible? You know, I have that that, um, you know, first that 19, 20 year old uh, existential moment. Well, everything I believed is not true. It, is anything, any, any of the Bible true? Is it inspired? Is it infallible? All these different things. And this has been a journey I've been on mm. for, I'd say quite a while. And there's a lot of good people out there on, on different sides of issues and coming to different conclusions. But what I do know is I, I don't know um, how to do this, but I do know there are some great questions um, being asked. And I think there are questions we can't just ignore as believers, right? Well, yeah. um, you know, whatever uh, you just, yeah. if it says that it's true. And it, I don't know, it's interesting to think about also, this is kind of an additive, someone pushed back that we're reading this through a lens of, uh, American Western eyes rather than understand this book was written in different times to different people, different cultures, and stories are written in different ways for different purposes. And then as a filmmaker, this coming full circle, what I realized is a lot of truth can be found from quote unquote fiction, from mm -hmm. uh, metaphor. And then you look at Jesus and Jesus loves fiction. In fact, he pretty much gives all of his theology. He tells it through the um, vehicle of fiction, i.e. parables. He uses stories uh, as a way to articulate a greater truth. And so as a storyteller, as someone who loves God, this has been a journey for me to figure out, well, how does this all fit in with this book we say is inspired holy scripture and what does it say about my life can i trust it can i not so that's kind of where i come to this conversation and from what i've seen so do a lot of other people who grew up in the church who are around my age is they actually love scripture they love their faith but they also want to know um how do we read scripture and can it be trusted and if this old methodology of just the plain reading isn't true is the Bible still uh, something we can count on, even if we don't quote unquote, read it literally? So that I'd say that's kind of where I come to. Joseph, what is your experience in all this? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's have a similar, similar, you know, story to yours again, you know, having grown up in one, you know, kind of, uh, of interpretation of reading the Bible, you know, literally, but, you know, I mean, with more room of like, with, with a lot more room of poetry, you know, of, but a lot more room of poetry, I would say. Um, the but a similar a similar struggles so like oh here's what I'm reading the Bible here's you know arguments against reading the Bible that way I think that you touched on a lot of really cool good things you know first of all I don't know anybody who says they take the Bible literally who actually does take the Bible all literally I mean everybody mm -hmm. reads Song of Solomon and says you know doesn't think that you know her breasts actually looked like two antelopes. Like, you know, everyone, you know, it says like, okay, yes, we understand poetic language. We understand 
um, we understand that. We understand what that looks like. The problem, you know, at least in some cases, and understand the Bible uses that. We understand what Jesus is telling parables. He's not telling true stories. Um, people understand that. Um, where people get dicey, and this is where you kind of brought in, and I found, and I found for myself and for other people, is that so much of the Bible is based on at least some of its claims being, you know, factually true. Like, oh, yes, you know, um, uh, you could point the camera and document this as a documentarian. Yes, Jesus, you know, if Paul says, if Christ has not actually been raised, then we are dead. We're still in our sins. The resurrection of the dead doesn't happen. You know, all these things. And, uh, and you know, before that, so much of the Jewish people's faith was based on God actually did interact with us. He did stir the pot and do these things. And so many of the people who were trying to say, okay, you know, the, uh, the people who are, you know, the, that, you know, Genesis couldn't have been done in six days were also saying, well, Jesus can't be raised, you know, uh, from the dead. And so that it's people didn't have I didn't have tools like okay well if that if this part is read as poetry or should be read as poetry when it looks to me as I'm reading it as if it is presenting itself as um not poetry then how do I determine what is to be read poetically and what is not and if and this is the kicker and this for me and I think for a lot of other people if it presents itself as not poetry, but it is clearly not true, then how can I trust it? Um, and if I can trust it, then of course the faith collapses. And so that I think is where I come from it and where a lot of people come from it. So what, what would you say is, and again, I'll say part of the reason chose it, does, should you read the Bible literally is because of search engine optimization. <laughs> you know? oh, okay. yeah. And so, and people that's how people are asking, asking quest, this question. Yeah. This is how they're phrasing it. So if that's the wrong way to phrase it, what is a what is a better question to ask? And how would you say, if you're going to read it and have confidence in it, how should you do that? Uh, yeah, that that's really helpful because I often have a hard time getting outside of my own world and thinking about these things. And uh, th that question seems so patently wrong to me that I don't I don't often <laughs> think of, and I don't I don't even touch this boundary. Um, but there's several things going on. Uh, one, I would want to be very careful not to create a couple of polarities here. One of them, I wouldn't want to create literal versus poetic because um, I don't think that exists. Um, you know, or or metaphoric versus act, you know actual. You know, everything we say, even when I'm doing my rigorous analytic philosophical reasoning, it's all in metaphor as well. Um, it's all you. Even mathematical reasoning is is constantly appealing uh, using metaphor, not for illustration, but actually using a uh, uh, metaphor for to reason to actually in the in the gears of reasoning. Uh, so it's really hard to say anything mm. without employing metaphor and analogy, et cetera. So what Jesus was doing with metaphor and analogy really was typical reasoning that everybody's doing. Um, I think that what I would advocate is this instead. Forget about literal or actual. I think historical is a great way to think of it. Historically, okay. do, does, his, does his history unfurl in a particular way or is it kind of a free-for-all historically? And then separately, I would say, I would say, yes, it does unfurl in a particular way. And the biblical authors are particularly part of that way. And here's the part that I love you said, you know, people who say they read it literally don't even do that. Um, it is, I, I give this analogy, two volume knobs. So think of, you know, like on an amplifier, think of uh, Spinal Tap, if you've ever seen that movie, right? Um, one volume knob is the theology, what my church says, what my pastor says, what I've always thought, because culture kind of taught, you know, God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent, whatever you think God is. And, you know, those kinds of ideas, God is spirit, infinite, eternal. Um, Jesus is all love or something. All of those cultural ideas on one volume knob. And the other volume knob is what the biblical authors actually say and how they say it. Not So the what they say can't be separated from how they say it. So when Jesus gives a parable, what he is saying and how he is saying it actually matters and they're inextricable from one another. Um, and I think what is happening is that, honest to God, because I teach people off the street Bible every semester, is that volume knob on our cultural interpretations of God, scripture, history, et cetera, is turned up to 11. 
And what the what the biblical authors are saying and how they're saying it is like a two at best for most of us. And so I would say what we need to do is turn the volume knob of our traditions, not all the way down. You can't silence them, right? But turn them way down and turn up the biblical author's voice to like, you know, an 11 or so and see what they have to say. So when people say the plain reading of scripture and uh, Joseph, you'll, you'll know, I do this kind of stuff in class, but Genesis one, even uh, full disclosure, I have a book coming out on Darwinism in, in Genesis, like Darwinistic ideas and how they're worked out by the biblical authors themselves in slightly different ways than Darwin works them out. But um, Genesis one, if you just want to say the plain reading, I'm going to say like, if I'm in, let's read it as an ancient Hebrew, right? In Hebrew, if we just go through and, and read, okay, in the beginning, uh, or sorry, in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth, right? Uh, it's Elohim, not El. Uh, and so you already like first sentence, you're like, gods, what are, who are these gods? And these gods talk to themselves and say, let us create man in our image and let, you know, look, he's become like one of us knowing good and evil. Um, but even then, and he said, let there be light. And there was light and you're and, and then you're like, okay, where do I put the, what is this light they're speaking of? Where is it coming from? Ancient Hebrews would have said light has causes lightning, fire. What else can light come? The sun, the sun, the moon it has causes. There's nothing to cause light in day one. So you, the first few sentences, you're already stuck with what an ancient Hebrew would consider a rational conundrum where the text on its plain reading seems to be demanding of something that you can't conjure up. Are you familiar with the old robot saying, does not compute? Um, and and even, and then it ends that day with, he saw that it was good and it was day and evening on day one, Yom Echad, right? And you say, okay, but hold on, a day means a 24-hour period, and you get a 24-hour period with the, the sun coming back to the, if you want to just put it in an ancient term, the sun has to come back to the same spot in the sky in order for there to be a 24-hour day. There's no sun, there's no source of light for four more days or three more days at this point. Uh, so there's, even if you're trying to read it plainly, rationally, literalistically, you're confronted with the, the first half of creation with all of these things that don't make sense. Even to an ancient Hebrew, they wouldn't make sense. Um, and then you get, you finish the six day cycle of creation, God rests on that day. And then you have this little piece of poetry that ties it up and says, these are the generations or the lineages or the genealogies of the heavens and the earth in the day that Yahweh created them. And you're like, or sorry, it's Elohim. No, it's Yahweh Elohim there, I think, in the day that Lord God created them. You're like, in the day? It just told us about seven days, and it referred to that seven-day period as in the day that he created them. Who writes sentences like that? Um, which, again, is a metaphorical use of the term day. The, the Erev uh, and Lila, the evening and morning, sorry, Erev and Boker, the evening and morning, uh, and, there, and that was day two. That's kind of what we consider a literalistic day. Uh, okay, there's an evening, morning. That's how we think about days celestially, how it ties into the, the cycle of the star. Um, saying back in the day that he created them, that's a metaphorical use. So I come out of Genesis 1 all the way up to Genesis 2-4, and I've got so, as an ancient Hebrew, I have so many questions about what is going on that will remain unanswered. Some of them will get answered as you keep plowing ahead into Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. Many will not be, they're unanswerable. So I don't know what the plain reading is at that point uh, when people want to tell me, like, do they believe in 24-hour days? Absolutely, those ancient Hebrews believe in 24-hour days. Do they describe those in Genesis? Yes but with the conundrums built in to where there's no way that you can say it's plainly 24 hour days and it could be nothing else. I have a question. This is so interesting to me because I think it's, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. I mean, it, it's very obvious. And I think a lot of people haven't even thought through those concepts that you just brought up that seem fairly obvious, which is interesting. Like you, you can't matter wasn't even around yet light is, and you know, all these different things. And so it's like, yeah, we are faced with conundrums. And what I've seen recently culturally, because I, I can't speak scientifically, I can't even really speak theologically on this. That's why you're here. But what I can speak on is culturally. What I see happening culturally is, you know, even just uh, flipping across TikTok or in, in talking to friends, what I see is people being faced with these conundrums. They, they finally, maybe after being raised in a Christian household or going to church or whatever it might be, they go, oh, wow, 
what what you said just makes a lot of sense. That, that's true. There are these discrepancies there that uh, between what I've been taught and what is plain plainly here, or the difficulties here, the incongruences. And what ends up happening is they find, for better or for worse, that this is a reason to no longer hold their faith. That okay, right. this is wrong. What I've been taught is wrong. So all of Christianity and Scripture is wrong. Now, without, you know, inserting my bias as, as, a, as a believer, what would your answer to them be? So you, you pointed yeah. out there's a lot of incongruency, you know, uh, evidence that doesn't lead up to the conclusions we previously made in our Christian yeah. culture that we grew up with. And so people are walking away from their faith. What would you say to them? Is, are, do these uh, quote unquote um, mistakes or, or incongruencies, do they should they inform us to walk away from this faith that's obviously kind of bogus? Or is there something deeper going on here that we should learn about how we should read scripture? And also, that bolsters uh, faith. Yeah, continue. Go ahead. I'll, I'll develop that a little bit more. But that's, that's sort of where I'm going to, um, is that you, you talked about how, you know, to get away from the metaphorical, literal, you know, uh, or actual binary. Um, but there still is a need to be able to read something and understand how, what kind of true it is trying to make. Because there is yeah. something difference between a truth and a lie or a true witness and a false witness, even in scripture. There is something to that. And there is different kinds of truth that you can be. You can have a, you know, whatever language you want to use for it, there can be, um, you know, the kind of truth that you would find in Shakespeare. And then there can be the kind of truth that you would find in um, an account, in a historical account of something that happened. And so I would say is that, you know, to Nathan's point, like, you know, are, the, are these reasons to like walk away from your faith, these conundrums, and also like, what are tools for people to determine how they should be reading this and when it's reliable to, um, to read it in a, let's say, historical um, uh, yeah. way versus a well, maybe this didn't actually happen. It's just here to teach us a lesson kind of way. Yeah. Let's let's just be brutally honest here at this point. Um, maybe not for you two, because I, I know Joseph, I had him as a student. He actually understands scripture very well. Uh, he's he's what I consider fluent beyond literacy. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, and he's unusual in that for, for his age and station in life. Most people are not. But a lot of this is like, look, if, if, you, want, if you want like their version of history, go read Kings. Um, that's a very like historical record. Mm. They're very clearly trying to establish a historical record. There's also a theological agenda as there is with all writing as far as I know. Um, but the, uh, that's, that's kind of, you're, I think a lot of this kind of how do we tell which is which just comes from they're not they haven't spent enough time in the text actually i mean a lot of it mm. same thing when people are like well what about all of these other gospels and things that are floating around i just tell people go read them like just go read a dozen of them and tell me what you think and if you just spend some time in those texts it'll be pretty clear at least how they're different from the gospels that we know or the epistles that we know uh, so I think part of this is just doing that basic grunt work of getting in the text for yourself and reading it and getting some familiarity to ask better, letting the text shape some of those questions because it'll answer a lot of those questions. I think also, and, and, and I would want to make sure that everything I said about Genesis 1, I don't think a single sentence of that is an incongruity. I don't think it's in any way a conflict. I think they're doing something else than what we think they're doing. And because we have the volume of tradition turned up. So even when you said, matter wasn't even created yet. Well, that's tradition speaking. That's not the biblical authors. Um, they're not talking about the creation ex nihilo in Genesis 1. That's a later tradition that's developed. Um, does that mean it's in creation ex nihilo out of nothing is incompatible? No, but you just have to be aware. It's like Trinity is a, is a tradition that emerges hundreds of years after Jesus. I think it's the best description of what's going on with Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father, but it's a tradition that emerges. And so it's always going to be anachronistic to say the Trinity that Paul teaches the Trinity overtly or something it's like, no, I think he assumes the Trinity. And, um, and so he teaches it loudly. I think a lot of what we're struggling with here, if you can tell me if I'm wrong, but my perception is a lot of it is this kind of like, um, it's uh, sorry, I gotta be kind here. 
this kind of well, if this they is don't. wrong, <laughs> if this is wrong, then everything's wrong, and I'm going to throw it. In I mean, it's just a very like my prefrontal cortex hasn't developed yet. It has to be black and white, otherwise I'm going to walk away. It's like well, okay, like if you're 15 years old, then I'm with you. Like you have full cognitive rights to make those kind of statements. But if you're not a child, uh, you know, like for a man, you've at least hit 21, and your and your your brain is fully developed. For a woman, it's going to be around 17 to 18 then you should be able to dig in and deal with some nuance. So as Christians, I think, and I see it with relative truth versus absolute truth, which I think those are philosophically incoherent ideas, uh, both of them, absolute and relative truth. Um, as Merrill Westfall, the philosopher, points out, nobody is a relativist. Uh, Nietzsche is about the closest thing to somebody who believes in anything goes relativism, and he didn't even believe in it. Um, so, so we can, we can do away with the boogeyman of relativism. Uh, I don't know a single philosopher today. I worked in philosophy for a while. And I don't know a single philosopher who would be happy with the light label relativist. And for Christians, you know, if I can represent the Christian, or at least people who want to reflect what's going on in scripture, you, you can't believe in one absolute truth, uh, unless you want to say God or the Trinity is the absolute thing. But, um, we have four gospels, like like the text. That, again, just go to the text. We have four gospels that we believe all truly represent the story of Jesus' birth. That well, not even his birth, his his life, his death, his resurrection, and they are not completely. Uh, they can't be comported to one another exactly. Tatian tried to do that in the third century, second century, and he couldn't cut and paste his way to a to a gospel where all of the gospels could be included without remainder and without conflict. Um, so the Christian tradition from the very beginning has unashamedly held four mutually exclusive stories, at least at points they're mutually exclusive from one another. They all believe that they're true stories about the same reality. Uh, but that's not a Christian thing. That is true of Samuels and Kings and Chronicles. We have the retelling of stories from different perspectives. That's true of Deuteronomy, retelling stories of Exodus and Numbers with a, with a slightly different twist on it. Um, uh, so this is actually part of the scriptural tradition that there is a relativity to truth, that it can, you know, the, the six blind men and the elephant, that they're all grabbing onto the same reality. And the way they come to know that reality better is not by demanding that the tail version of the elephant is the real elephant or the trunk version is the real elephant or the leggy version, mm. is that they talk to each other and then in, in informing each other on their experience with the elephant, they come to know the elephant more truly than any one of them could alone. And I think that would be uh, putting the four gospels in conversation also helps you to know Jesus better than uh, any one gospel alone. And, and that's not just my opinion. That's the church's opinion. Like that's how the church has always held these, these texts together. So we don't need to be afraid of the boogeyman of relativism. Nobody actually believes that. Even People will claim to, I used to teach philosophy in a public university. So I know there's always some 18 year old guy who will be like, yeah, I believe, you know, killing 6 million Jews is equivalent to eating ice cream. Um, but when you just scratch the surface, like it turns out, no, most people are, are pretty um, morally and epistemically, you know, theories of how we know things and what is true and what's not, how do you justify it? They, they believe there's some firmness to all of these things. Um, so we don't need to be children. Sorry to That's all it. the children that listen to your podcast. <laughs> yes. We have a huge conglomerate of children that tune in every week yeah. to listen to these deeply philosophical and theological issues. That That's an interesting... Um, yeah, it's interesting how, how, how you're talking about this. And this is kind of where I've been coming to for the past 10 years, which is the reason I see people... I think, you know, on, on a, a sociological understanding of it, why people are so afraid of um, approaching scripture this way, of, of losing that quote unquote literal interpretation is one, they fear that everything they've been taught is a lie and that mm. scripture can't be trusted and that it's not true. Like I, I made an allusion to earlier. And then two, what I see is a little bit of fear mongering going on is that if we, if it's not easy to read scripture and just immediately understand it, then people are going to use it for their own selfish ends, that mm. we're going to cherry pick things and now we're allowed to do this and not allowed to do this and these people are and these people aren't, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a fear um, on, it's, it's, a, it's based in fear, uh, needing to read 
scripture this way because you either worry that it's all bogus and we shouldn't believe any of it or people just use it for their own selfish ends and, and I understand that but what it sounds like you're saying and correct me if I'm wrong is us not immediately understanding maybe a particular way or a particular thing that scripture um, is saying or us not easily summing up uh, scripture and uh, the, the messages that are in said, in said verse or book or work is really not um, scripture's problem. It's not that there's a problem with scripture. And so there's a problem with us. And I think today and probably always people want an easy way into things. They want an easy, easy method to wrap up their beliefs and understanding of truth. Um, and so when people come along and say, actually, it's a lot more complicated than that, the pushback isn't only just, oh, I worry about the, my fears, but it's also, no, that makes it a lot more complicated. That means I'm going to have to study more. That means I'm actually going to have to read this with um, more investigation. And that take, that's mm -hmm. too much time. And that's too difficult. It's easier to read it plainly, quote unquote. And so it sounds like what you're saying is, well, it's not really scripture's problem it's our problem that we're the ones who have the responsibility to read this with uh more intellectual honesty and depth and it's not really scripture that's messed up it's I, messed up is the wrong word but it's us yeah, yeah. which is an interesting way to think of it and i don't think many people especially in christian culture do yeah and i i think we I think part of the problem that's a really good way to put it yeah. and you know i like part of me as a former pastor i think what kind of church, like, like what kind of church is producing people who are terrified that everything they believe might be overturned by this, that, or the other, right? I mean, like something's yeah. gone deeply wrong there. And so my response to that was going to be, I, this isn't scripture's problem. This is the community, the Christian community's uh, problem. And uh, I think also my most recent book is, is basically making a very long, very nerdy argument that that the biblical tradition is actually the greatest intellectual tradition in the history of humankind, bar none, without any competitors, uh, without any real competitors. And 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 I I know atheist classicists at Harvard or sorry at Oxford who will make that claim as well. Uh, so this isn't like you have to be a confessional Christian to believe this. Um, I, I work in a work group of ancient Near Eastern scholars. I think part of it is too. We don't read any other ancient Near Eastern literature, so we don't realize how unique scripture mm. is and what it does and how flirted it is and how it's not, because I want to make sure to make the point, because everything you just said, I would wholeheartedly uh, subscribe to, except for it might sound to some people like, oh, well, this is for overthinkers and everybody else need not apply. Mm. And I want to say, no, uh, flip that. It's actually the greatest intellectual tradition, and it's the only one in antiquity, and maybe even today, that is de demanded that uh, children, foreigners, native-born, old, young, male, female, it doesn't matter who you are, what language you speak, or your position in life, you're actually expected to enter this intellectual world and mm -hmm. kind of like mull around it and think about how it works. And the evidence of that, for me, is in Luke 12, Jesus is yelling at farmers, not scribes, scholars, rabbis, et cetera. He's yelling at farmers at the end of Luke 12, like verse 52 and following. And he's saying, you know how to read the meteorology. Like, you know how to, you say, oh, a cloud's coming from the West, there must be rain. And so it happens. You know how when the, the, the winds come up from out of Egypt, you know that it's going to be hot the next day. And so it happens. You hypocrites. That's, I mean, that's his strongest language. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the weather, but you don't know how to interpret this present sign. And he's basically, if you look at the, the rhetoric that is being used throughout Luke and there as well, is he's saying, if you understood the Torah, and he comes back to this over and over again in Luke's gospel, if you had just listened to Moses and listened to the prophets, this should all be fairly obvious to you. Maybe not crystal clear, but the, the breadcrumbs are here and you should be like uh, piecing them together. Yeah. Um, and the answer and, the, and the, the indictment to farmers who are maybe even barely literate is you're hypocrites. You know how to do this. You have the skill. You just you're not applying it equally. And look, if you're watching a four series Netflix, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, any any Netflix series today, the, the narrative is so complex and the plot lines and the characterization, the character development on almost anything that's out there today understanding scripture is completely within our grasp and you can't mm. tell me that it's not right you can't tell me that oh no i don't know how to do poetry 
yeah, Hebrew poetry <laughs> is a little weird, uh, but it takes about 10 minutes to get used to it. And then all of a sudden the world opens up to you, right? So yeah, I'm sorry, you get, you, you got me monologuing as Syndrome once said. You sly dog. No, 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 this is That's fantastic. I, so let me, I love it. Let me, let me uh, make a, a point and then summarize a bunch of the things that I think that you said um, before you know, we have you kind of uh, wrap us up. And, and correct me in my summaries of you. But um, one is, this is really very important. This is one of the things I talked about in my Bible study is that, you know, this is not a problem just for scripture because, you know, somebody's like, why can't the truth just be obvious and plain? This is a conversation. I say, like, well, have you turned on the news? <laughs> have you like engaged or listened at all to scientists, you know, talking to each other? Do you like, you know, do you have teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> is that, you know, discerning truth, you know, is a and and understanding and interpreting, you know, ideas and basic facts is not an easy thing in any sphere of life. So if you're yeah, you shouldn't be point. You shouldn't be asking more of scripture than we do just of how do you live in the real world? Like, you know, I, just determining what happened based on watching the news from different news sources is uh, an insane, an insane task. And I, but I think one of the things that you point out is that, look, we find a way to navigate the rest of the world, even though it's confusing in that way, even though we don't know, is this opinion or is this fact, which is, you know, sort of a, a way that we discern in news, like is somebody letting their biases shine through, or are they reporting this accurately? We know we've, we, at least most of us have found a way to live in the world, figure out how to do that. And reading scripture, being able to actually say, okay, is this person using a flourish here? Are they show, making you know, a theological point here? Are they reporting something you know, with relative, you know, the relative degrees of bias or, 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 you know, whatever, you know, that's something you're capable of doing. If you actually just read it, the reason that you think that it's actually hard is because you're not actually engaging with it and engaging with other smart people who know more than you about it in the way that you do with everything else in your life. Um, and, and that is what you should do if you're having confusing problems with scripture is you should do what you do with everything else in your life, which is to uh, actually engage with it and read it and then consult people with people uh, who know more than you. That well, and I'll say this oh, yeah. right before I'm going to let you wrap up, uh, uh, Dr. Drew, but you know, this is something that keeps on coming around, at least in my mind, that really helped me. So if this is something new to any of you listeners out there, like, oh my gosh, the, the Bible isn't quote unquote literal, my whole world is falling apart. Um, it, no, it's not. This should be an encouragement to you to jump into this immensely relevant and ancient collection even further. This yeah. isn't an encouragement to leave it because it's all all bogus. This is just encouraging you to actually dive deeper into this yeah. really um, interesting and complex thing. And also remember that again, I said this earlier, and so did and so does everyone else. But this is a collection of books written over a thousand years by multiple multiple authors in different languages, and it's beautiful and it's world changing. But it's also complex and deep, and that's a beauty. That's an invitation. I think you said those words earlier, Doctor Drew. That that this is something that you get to you get to jump into and see the beauty of um and yeah and that's something that's really exciting for me that when I let go of my preconceived notions that it actually became even an even more beautiful collection of work and I see actually its power um so that's what I would encourage any listeners who are like oh my gosh what's going on uh, as you're doing don't just um dismiss and don't be scared so if you take my head we'll close our eyes and count jump in because it really is a beautiful thing and like you said i love the encouragement this isn't just for academics or overthinkers this is for everyone and it is something that with a little effort can be approached and understood and the more you understand the more you approach it the more you dive in the more beautiful this story is and again i will remind people this is what i always say too that for some reason god likes working through fallible people that i mean we're supposed to carry out his quote his quote will in the world and all we do is mess up i mean just look at the church for the past two thousand years and the same thing is still true with scripture you have a collection of people for whatever reason writing scripture 
And there, and you have to realize that these are people writing this. So you have to go in understanding that and looking at how these things are written, who they're written by, who they're written to. Um, but that's a really exciting journey that I hope yeah. that people after this conversation will be excited about taking. And I'll just briefly say before John, so you have the last word is that look, this we're all saying this we all agree on this and like again i'm a person who believes that you know jesus really did rise from the dead and that there's really were miracles that happened and so like this you're not gonna believing this stuff is not gonna stop you from being an orthodox christian in any meaningful sense that has been true over the past two thousand years so like so you know, to yes to oh, oh yeah so to wrap up um dr dr drew johnson will you to the people who this is a new thing like I was yeah. raised in this particular way. Um, and maybe even to our, our listeners who aren't believers, who, yeah. well, I've always looked at scripture and this has this been ridiculous. Obviously it's, it's bogus. What are the next steps you would encourage, mm, yes. you know, kind of summing up our conversation, but also the next steps you would encourage people in this conversation, understanding and appreciation of scripture, of scripture to take? I mean, there really is it's very difficult to get around the kind of time and text issue. Um, and, I, and I think it's not just reading text, but reading text with a question. Like what, what, so Genesis, read the whole book, two chapters are on the creation of the cosmos, you know, and Joseph gets 12 chapters and Joseph's tribes get killed off by the end of the, the Hebrew Bible. Sorry, spoiler mm. alert, if you didn't know that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to watch he gets, the movie. Okay. Yeah, he gets 12 <laughs> chapters, right? And I mean, you can ask questions like, "What, what, what is it on about? Like, what is, what is this text as a whole trying to do as, a, as the book of Genesis? And how does that spill over into Exodus? And why does Jesus quote Leviticus all the time, the, the, the book that everybody's so afraid of? Like, why is he so hip on this issue of Leviticus? I do run a podcast called The Biblical Mind where we talk to a lot of scholars. For lay, we talk to scholars, but we speak in plain, plain ways. Um, who are trying to help translate some of these ideas, not dumb them down, but translate them. Uh, dumbing down doesn't help anybody, but actually translate them over so they make a little bit more sense. And the biblical mind, we also have articles and videos. We have a whole uh, three little short videos on truth um, because even using the term truth, so when people say something is either true or false or uh, true and false isn't like an on-off switch, you're, you're already not talking about truth the way the scripture is talking about truth. Uh, scripture has its own way of discussing truth and it's actually something very similar to the way um, a lot of my work has been on that the way scripture talks about the world is probably most closely resembled by the scientific enterprise today. Science basically mimics most of what scripture is trying to do as far as understanding the world and having good justifiable reasons for understanding the world correctly. So an issue, you know, I think the other thing, you know, questions of like fairness, people will get hung up on like women aren't treated. You know, I, I still hear people saying, well, the Old Testament or the New Testament, these patriarchal, misogynistic texts. And I'm like, have you actually read these texts? Uh, <laughs> if, if they're written by men, which I take it that most of them were, the men look like complete idiots almost throughout. The women in Genesis, the women are entirely in charge. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you know, again, from Judges Samuels onwards, men are doofuses and women are the men are the emotional ones who in the in the heat of their emotion make stupid decisions. And women are the wise ones who come in calm, cool, collected, rational and help them override themselves. Right. Like you. And if you don't know that if that sounds surprising to you or you just don't believe it, then go read the text, um, because that's what's exactly what's going on in the text. Um, and so I think a lot of it is just going to be. Like I became a Christian when I was 20 from kind of a day and night uh, conversion. And I just started reading the text. And I wish I honestly, so I remember at 20 years old reading all the Bible for the first time. And I, it was a page turner, not because it was riveting, but because it was nothing like what I thought it actually said. Uh, and in many ways, what I've learned over the years is it's way better. And everything we think from equality of humanity to um, the value of human life that, you know, just because you steal property doesn't mean you should be executed. You know, uh, that you and I are equal human beings, whether you're a transvestite or a transsexual or a homosexual or a cisgendered male, it doesn't matter that we're equal human humans. The only place you get these ideas from is absolutely not the Greco-Roman tradition, um, mm. but the, the Hebrew tradition only. And Jesus Jesus repeats these things out of the Hebrew Bible. So in many ways, the, the way we, and lots of scholars have made this point over the last century, 
almost everything in our world, we think biblically. We think from we most of all of our thoughts and values and dreams and hopes and aspirations, all come, our view of history, everything. It basically comes from the Hebrew Bible and gets filtered again through the New Testament. And so it's really ironic to watch like these atheists. I have lots of atheist philosopher friends, you know, who live out essentially a Christian ethic. They believe you should be married to one person, even if they think that should extend in lots of different directions. Uh, they believe you should be compassionate to people, even if you don't know them, even if they're below your status, even if they owe you money, like all of these things that no other civilization ever believed, right? Um and so we're kind of all living out what scripture teaches, but we just have no idea how to connect any of these ideas. So there's so much shocking stuff in there that's worth investigating. Um, but you got to bring a question and some, you got to bring some spirit to the game. Mm. Oh, amen. That. That's fantastic. And amen. on that, let's, let's uh, get to blesses and curses where we can give some people some practical ways to uh, uh, continue this investigation discussion and thought process in their own mind. Fantastic. So we always, yes, of course, as uh, he alluded to, we uh, blesses and curses segment is where we take a resource, a work of art or media that we think that ties in with a subject that we think uh, we want to recommend or one or some that we want to uh, tell people to stay away from, want to curse. So uh, we always give our guests opportunity to uh, participate in one or both at either the beginning or the end of the segment. So uh, Dr. Johnson, would you like to start us off or would you like to wait for uh, uh, Nathan and I to go first and, and see how sort of how we do it? Or how I'll, I'll let like you guys to... go first. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so Nathan, you want to go first or shall I? Sure. Yeah, cool. yeah, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to pull up my blesses and curses. This was an interesting one because there's not a whole lot of, of movies that cover the, uh, the, literal, uh, the literalistic uh, elements of the Bible. So um, I'm going to do some books. I'm trying to get back to blessing and cursing books. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. One person who has been really interesting for me to read, um, and this, by the way, this is not a carte blanche endorsement of everything he says or thinks or believes, but the way uh, this author and thinker thinks about things and articulates things and the conclusions he's come to has really challenged me and has opened my mind to um, investigating myself and different things. But it's a guy by the name of Greg Boyd, Gregory A. Boyd. Um, <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to chuckle. <laughs> oh, I, I, I hear some. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad you said you didn't endorse all of his works. <laughs> so. We'll do the open theology at some point. Don't worry. Okay. Um, but uh, but I think that he is. For me, he has. Um, again, while without endorsing everything he said, I've enjoyed his challenges to um, classic understandings of scripture of uh, uh of these different things uh he has a new book out called uh, and it's not that new joseph what's it called crucifixion of the warrior crucifixion god. of the warrior god which kind of investigates those big questions of how can you call god loving and he's putting to death and ethnically cleansing multiple people throughout the old testament and he and he, he wrestles with those questions and i really appreciate people who wrestle with these questions so whether you listen to an interview or read one of his books um one of his books is uh inspired imperfection which kind of tackles the understanding of is scripture inspired? Is it um, is it infallible? And so he's wrestling with those. And do, and it, do his contradictions make it not make it not inspired? You know. Yeah, and so I enjoy the wrestlings, and I and I learn whenever I um, listen or read him. Um, again, don't worry, Doctor Johnson, without agreeing with everything, uh, <laughs> but I enjoy his. So I'm gonna, I'm going to give that a bless. Um, I'm going to give a curse just because I think it did wreck a lot of havoc so confidently without any humility on a lot of young believers um understanding of scripture in god and uh as i look back i go oh my gosh but i, I hesitate to say this because i know there's a lot of fans and so i Do don't it. i don't dislike you if you like them but i would encourage you to read some more um but ken ham um has just on culture as a whole with his 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 uh revolution i guess against evolution or understanding the Bible with any kind of nuance has just so really wrecked. I think a lot of, I think he's actually caused a lot of people to walk away from the church because they actually do investigate these things and find out this, this uh, ideology around scripture and God as a whole has so many holes and it's not congruent with the, the 
the truth they end up seeing. Um, but you know, one of the famous books is The Lie of Evolution. And um, I, I think one, it's just such an interesting thing to focus so much time on um, and, and to parse out who is a Christian, who isn't a Christian based on if they believe in evolution or not. And so I'm gonna curse that book. Um, and I'm so sorry if you like him, but you know, uh, read some more. And, and I'm sure that both these guys will have some great other um, uh, blesses that maybe you can pick up and read. But yeah, I, I got to curse the Angels in Genesis and uh, the lie of evolution, because I think it's just so full of holes. And even more than that, because I read a lot of things I don't agree with, but I still like. Um, it's so confident and pompous in its articulation of, quote, reality. And it divides people. And I think whenever we're learning, because we're all humans, there needs to be a humility approaching these things. And there's just very little humility I find in his methodology and words. So um, yeah, the live evolution and the kind of the answers and Genesis thing, I, I got I got a curse. Sorry, sorry, everybody. Uh, I think we just lost a couple of listeners. <laughs> uh, no, that's uh, uh, cool. That's cool. Um... We're, it's fine, you know. We're gonna, we're gonna. Our, our listeners are gonna go up and down. We'll just have a higher quality cadre as it, yeah, as it goes on. Um, so I'm going to follow uh, Nathan's lead and then very briefly give some like resources. I think that I think a recommendation. I think that the Bible Project that's you can find on YouTube, particularly their their the things that they do that are taking. Uh, their podcast is great too, but particularly the videos if you're looking for. Uh, things that are quickly kind of helping you understand uh, certain uh, topics in the Bible and certain um, stories in the Bible. Those are really helpful. I found them really helpful. Um, I think it's a good place to start. Again, if you're just trying to get started on this path of like wrestling with this, that's really good. Um, also, you know, I, I'm going to do my, my, my suck up moments here. It's like, you, you should listen to things that Dr. Drew Johnson is involved in because he interviews a lot of scholars on like the biblical mind and on script podcast that can help you engage with these topics more. I, um, uh, I re- bought the book, um, uh, portrayal of violence in the old, te- uh, in the Bible, uh, based on, uh, an interview that I, I saw that he did with someone. Um, oh, Matt, Matt Lynch's book. Yes, yes. So, yeah, that's, who is also an on-script co-host. Yes, there you yeah. go. So, um, so I, there's, there's a lot of if you want resources there. I'll say watching YouTube videos online of stuff that William Lane Craig does is really good at, you know, looking at this from a philosophical point of view, but that's really easy to understand if you have questions. So those are some good resources there. Um, I'll also say that, uh, so for uh, movies, I'm going to do a couple, a couple of movie shows. Um, I, I think... Uh, the Chosen series, which I have, I really like and I've blessed before, um, is really good, particularly to watch if you can find the commentaries with the biblical scholars that they have talking, because they get to, they talk about the choices they made in the show, the stuff, because they're trying to imagine, they're doing about the life of Jesus, so they're trying to imagine uh, and fictionalize certain things, why they made the decisions they did that they did. And so you get to see a lot of the uh, Bible scholars debating. It's like, well, this is maybe less likely to be accurate, but it's interesting and this is why we did it. And so that was help you to engage with um, material. And also I think that the Chosen just does better job than most at engaging with the material in a way that brings it to life uh, in a way that's accurate uh, to the time period, at least knowledgeably makes adaptations. Um, cursing, I'm gonna go with oldies but goodies that I haven't really gotten a chance to curse on this podcast yet. But I'm going to curse the um, uh, Noah and Exodus Gods and Kings movies that came out a while back. Um, because, Those are literal? Yes. <laughs> um, the, the Exodus Gods and Kings uh, with, with the, where it had an all-white cast playing <laughs> yeah. Egyptians yeah. and Semites. Yeah, Very I authentic. remember that one. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, and again, that is definitely something to, to criticize about it, but I, for me, again, I did a, a really cringy YouTube video about the Noah movie that if people want to find on YouTube, it's still there. Um, but for me, a lot of times they just, they, they would find ways to, uh, to shockingly miss the point of the stories that they were adapting. I mean, when you have an extremely short story, which Noah is the Bible, that repeats several times, um, you're going to, uh, you know, I'm, I want you to, I'm going to save you, your wife, your sons, your sons' wives. And that's like, that's one of the high priorities. And they repeat it several times, a very short story. And then your entire conflict of your movie is based on the fact that they don't know if God wants to save them and that they're not going to uh, bring wives on board, you know, so they're you know, like your entire conflict is based on 
not what's going on in the scripture. Um, I just, I think that's a, it's dumb. That's a dumb thing to do. Um, I think that they just, they find ways to colossally miss the point as they're trying to imagine a world based on these things, which just as somebody that's like, if you're going to do that, why bother me? Which happily the director went on to discuss his, to do another movie called Mother, where he gets to discuss his ideas and the stuff he's wrestling with and interested about God, but through his own project. So he's not doing an injustice to the text. Actually liked that movie. No, I, I was, my, no, I mean, yeah, it. It was yeah, 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 yeah. It was decent. I, I yeah. liked it. Yeah, it was decent. And he was dealing with his own issues that he was actually wrestling with in his own context, which is what made it good. Um, See, I so thought I, the Noah was actually, I thought he was picking up on themes in Genesis and Exodus that most people miss. Oh, I, I mean, Noah, yeah. there's no, there's not even a narrative arc in the, in the Noah. It's not even, I, I wouldn't even say it's a story. I'd say it's just a large chiasm, but um but the one thing that I did appreciate, so like the, yeah, the Noah part, I was like, how can he mess this up? And I was like, oh, okay, he went bizarre. He went Hellenistic Jewish narratives on it, uh, which is fine. But that God coming to people and then misunderstanding what he's saying and then acting egregiously upon their misunderstanding, that's a pretty strong storyline in scripture. We see that um, a few different Oh, that's points. fair. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I thought that was interesting. It doesn't rescue the movie for me. And also the fact that these, according to the biblical uh, timelines, that these people overlap in their lives for hundreds of years. Sure. So uh, seeing Adam coming and, uh, you know, discussing with the, the grandfather there is, it, yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. It does get things that other people don't get, but then it replaces yeah. it with its own yeah. extremely problematic stuff. So it, it, can't, yes. it can't really it can't really bless it too much. Also, killing people because they are going after animals and then chastising your son for picking a flower. I don't know. It's a, a little bit a little bit far for me. Um, yeah. But nice. uh, but yeah, cool. So those are my curses. Okay, so now the biblical scholar who actually yeah. knows what he's talking about more than I we wanna, do. I want to hear his beef with uh, Greg Boyd so we can get Greg Boyd on here to defend him. <laughs> both of you guys. Well, we interviewed um, Greg Boyd for Onscript. Uh, I think ooh. actually we did a two-part interview with him. Um, so yeah. Guys, but, move and, on from this to, yeah. to listening to that. So that would be really fascinating. Go I, on. It's not, it's not Greg Boyd. I think Greg Boyd represents a class of people who um, who are looking for ways to make God not violent um, mm. and to make and to make judgment not part of the plan of God or the, God's response to the violence and the ruining of humanity. Um, and so he finds one one particular way that lots of people have found throughout the years, and then kind of crafts the narrative around that, and then and then that becomes the lens through which he seems to choose what is metaphor, what is um, was oh, like a heuristic versus not and um and to me these ring you know i'm a combat veteran and i've spent time you know significant amount of time in the majority world and um i i get the sense and i may be completely wrong and this is not about greg it's about this kind of class of scholars who do these do make this kind of a move i don't think they've spent time in like truly problematic mm. systemically and endemically corrupt and violent circumstances where you can't Interesting. walk out i think if you live in a world where violence is an intrusion to a normal normally peaceable and healthy life then the 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 violence of scripture becomes a lot more problematic for you i think if you lived in the rest of the human history up until the 20th century uh a lot i know lots of people and we've interviewed recently even uh, for the biblical mind, some uh, Cong a Congolese scholar who survived the atrocities, who was a child soldier in the Congo, wow. did all, and, and, you know, he talks about, which I've experienced when I taught in Kenya, people who had survived uh, atrocities and wars, and they, like, celebrated that God would smash the teeth of their enemies. And, Interesting. You know, and so he he has a really good book on Nehum. He's an Old Testament scholar uh, called Piles of Slain, Heaps of Corpses, where he explains why Congolese uh, atrocity survivors read these texts that we're also squeamish and embarrassed about. They read them in celebration of who God is and not wow. like bloodthirsty celebration, but like earnest yearning for God's uh, justice. Justice. Yeah. And wow, so we, we have a very narrow view of justice, I think. And that's, and I think Greg Boyd represents one of those narrowings of justice that I'm not quite sure does justice to the world of justice. If I can just repeat that word so read time. both of those books listeners and yes yeah, be, yeah we yeah. need to have the, the violence of god that, that's great that's interesting yeah. i love that pushback okay great now your blesses and curses uh i'll be really quick so people who i think uh and 
in roundabout ways literally get us in, into scripture. Uh, Esau Macaulay's two colleagues of mine, Esau Macaulay's Reading While Black, fantastic book. I'm mm, making all my students mm. read it, where he's trying to show what scripture is actually saying to uh, an African-American community today, how, how this is actually directly wow. relevant. And to me, that's literal. Like when, when the universal truth of it actually transports into very tricky, nuanced, thick situations today, uh, that's when we see the power of what God has done through his people. Same thing, Amy Bird, actually, I blurbed her book, The Sexual Reformation. I think she's got one of the best biblical and also philosophical views of gender and uh, mm. what that means and what that entails. She actually uses, so talking about literal, she uses the Song of Songs as the rubric through or the, the lens through which she just explores the entire issue of gender uh, in the wow. church. And and it's, it's I, I blurbed it for a reason because it's really good. Um, and also, you know, just to push the line even further, if you haven't seen Tree of Life, I think it's probably the mm, single yeah. best filmic interpretation of anything in scripture I've ever seen, mm. because it captures, it captures the, the poetry of scripture along with the message and the, the emotional impulse and duress. And, and it does it by helping 20th century Americans identify with these characters in ways they couldn't otherwise. Um, wow. I love it. Yeah. Fantastic film. Malik is a genius. Definitely. Yeah. Excellent. And cursing. Oh, and Strayan. He just needs to stop. <laughs> this is inside baseball here, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if, if you if you must, just uh, look in on Twitter. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, yes. But yeah. That I'm one of those man. guys who is going. I think I know, but I'm going to have to go. You know what? Let, let, I shouldn't come after Owen because um, he just represents the, the the whole masculinity movement, Christian masculinity movement just mm. absolutely needs to die a quick death. And I'm I'm actually doing a book club with my young men here on a book on killing and what it, and why combat killing is the way it is and way it goes down. And we've learned more about the fragility, the emotional span of men, the, the need for love and camaraderie. Mm. through looking at combat murder you know killing other people in combat um we've seen more real manhood from this guy who's not even a christian writing this book than i've heard of any of that masculinity movement so wow interesting now we gotta have we've done some uh, some masculinity uh podcasts and we gotta, gotta do another one that's great yeah well fun, fun. dr drew johnson thank you so much for being on if people want to connect with you more follow your podcast get your books give us a place they can find you and your work um, I have a narcissism hole at drewjohnson.com. So <laughs> yes. drujohnson.com. It's dru so I can remember how to spell it. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's got all of that stuff on there. But I wouldn't blame anybody who wouldn't want to go check anything more out. <laughs> if they've heard enough, I wouldn't blame <laughs> like enough so, of this guy. Yeah. You, I, I, and give us the name of your podcast and the book that you say you talked about a couple times coming out so people can keep an eye out for it. Oh, I don't know what the name of the book is. The publisher, you know, in case you didn't know this, publishers, I have no contractual, like you can't pick the name of your book at all. Yep. The marketing department picks <laughs> that, right? So um, it'll be something like uh, a Darwinism in, within scripture or something like that. Um, can't wait. But, and uh, and then- Most recent oh, one is Biblical Philosophy that you just- Yeah, that, that's the one with Cambridge, which I just found out is being translated into Portuguese. So I'm pretty excited nice, about that because nice. I work in I work in Brazil quite a bit, so- um, yeah, and then um, the Biblical Mind podcast and OnScript, which I enjoy. I enjoy doing them because I, I get to talk to all these people and I get all this wisdom from, like you guys, you get to bring people yeah, on exactly. and get wisdom and you can chew the meat and spit out the bones. I get almost all meat on those podcasts, unlike nice. you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of meat today. So thank you so much, Johnson, for joining us. Uh, Nathan, if people want to reach out with, to get in touch with you, how can they do that? They can go to my narcissistic online space, NathanClarkson.me, or they can search my name, Nathan Clarkson, on any of the socials. I'm on all the socials as well. You can find me there, or you can find me at my narcissistic space, josephholmstudios.com. And also you can find my work, a regular contributor at Religion Unplugged for their culture and movie reviews. So thank you again so much, Johnson. Thank you for all of you listeners for coming, joining. And remember, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about. <laughs> <laughs>